You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. This week, guest preacher Dave McGrew explores the beautiful truth that we are not our own. Well, it's a great honor to be with you here and to be in the Word with you today. Uh, my name is Dave McGrew, and I'm the assistant uh, pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Cumberland. Uh, Pastor Joe and I developed a really sweet Christian friendship, and I cannot tell you how much that friendship means to me, Um, and uh, I have just the highest respect for him, so it's a great honor to be able to be with you here today. You know, we often remember and meditate on scripture verses out of context. We often do that. We have them on plaques, perhaps in our Homes, or uh, perhaps somewhere on your, uh, maybe your Instagram, you have some Bible verses that mean a lot to you. And this can create mischief and false application. A lot of times it can. But Scripture is so profound that sometimes, even when taken out of context, it still can positively guide a Christian worldview. Uh, Here's an example, perhaps one of the most well-known out-of-context usages of Scripture from 2 Chronicles 7:14, the if my people pray passage, right? It reads this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. We see this go up often at times of national crisis. Perhaps people will buy billboards and put this verse up there. And you know, this passage does not deal with America. It doesn't, and you probably know that. It is about Israel, and its context is the consecration of the Temple of Solomon. But it is a call to humility. It is a call to prayer. It is a call for the heart's hot pursuit of godliness, and that can be a vital challenge. And so I'm going to do something here that uh, I would not ever recommend. (laughs) I'm going to begin with a meditation on Scripture out of context, and then we're going to go back in and reload that and look at it in context. So I'm going to uh, basically share with you some extended applications for your worldview as a Christian before I go back and I do the expositional work. That's normally backwards. We do it the other way normally. I'll explain why, as we get to the exposition, why I'm doing it this way. Before we go here, let me just share a a personal word to you. This message is not for someone else. This is for you. This is a no-elbow zone, spouses, friends. You're not elbowing your neighbor, okay? This message is for you. It is God's word for you. And it is a very sensitive message. It's going to touch on some personal areas. So pray with me uh, for a pierced heart, wounds that will ultimately heal the soul. Gracious Lord, open your word before our eyes and open our hearts to see the glory of Christ. Father, we know that this is a sharp sword that we open upon. And forgive us for so often going to this word Uh, like we would go to some kind of a narcotic for a quick fix. I pray that we would be cut open by your word today. 
but I pray that your spirit would use this inspired word to heal our hearts and to guide our steps, to set us right. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage, if you would like to get your Bible open to it, will be 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. However, I am going to focus on verses 19b through 20. Two statements with several different legs to them. And I'm going to repeat this over and over again because I really want it to sink in. I want this to cut into your heart very deeply. And these are the words... You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, that is a passage extracted from its context, and I'm going to invite with you, with some fear and trembling, to just dwell on this truth. You are not your own. And forgive me for repeating it over and over again. I want to hammer it into your hearts, church. You're not your own. Everything in our secular society asserts the opposite of this. The world says, be yourself. You don't belong to someone else's ideas of you. You could be a self-made man. The shallow pseudo-psychology that's sold in the, in the marketplace of ideas insists you are your own person. Believe in yourself. You deserve your dreams. So everything in our opening phrase is running counter our culture. But this scripture is addressed to Christians. And Christians, we are not our own. We belong to God. It's a profound thing to realize that we usually don't think of ourselves as belonging to someone else for their purposes, let alone enjoying that. Even in marriage, if I may say this, it's so easy for us to, uh, even though we learn much in marriage, to forget uh, how much we owe to one another. We are not our own. We belong to God. Now, this can be looked at in two senses, and I'm going to be trying to take each phrase and break this down in a negative view and in a positive view. In a negative view, which is how often we take scriptures like this that really kind of uh, pierce us, we think, oh, well, I don't have any freedom. I'm just captive to God. You know, and a lot of Christians feel like this is, is a mark of Christian maturity, to think of just what we're giving up. We think of our, our Christian life in the negative. You are not your own. But I want to submit to you that Christian maturity moves that towards a positive view. And the positive view of you are not your own is this. We are always overruled by something or someone. The scripture says, whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. You're always overruled by someone or something. And if you are overruled by God, that is an amazing, joyful, purpose-filled reason to think about yourself and to exist. C.S. Lewis put it uh, really, uh, really smartly, pointedly. He says this. There's two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. <laughs> Stop and think about it. There really are only two kinds of people in this world. Either we submit our will to God and say, thy will be done, as Christ did, or God says, fine, then thy will be done. As human beings, we're either owned by God or we're slaves to our appetites. There is no middle ground. Mark that. So often the world wants to put us in a position where we speculate like philosophers upon life and pretends that there's this third realm where we can see everything. We can see this side and we can see that side. There's no such thing. You're either beholden to God or you're beholden to something else. So it's really a relief to know that you're not your own. And we should praise God for that. I love how Psalm 100, we often uh, use this around Thanksgiving time as sort of a, a call to worship. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. It's a beautiful thing to know that we belong to God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Come with me to that leg of this second part. You were bought with a price. And this brings us to the slave market. And I know we live in a culture and in a moment where speaking of slavery ushers up all of these dark uh, stories about America's um, problems, what we sometimes call our, our original sin as a nation with chattel slavery. But the scripture sees this very differently. And in context, the slave market in the time of Christ was not so much a racist thing as it was just a part of how culture worked. You had nations conquering nations, and the conquered people became enslaved and had to live out their lives under the rule of their masters. And people, as disgusting as this is to our notions today, were bought and sold quite frequently in the ancient world. This, this has gone on for the vast uh, preponderance of human history. <clears throat> and so this is something that whenever you use the word redeem, to be redeemed, it's again a word that comes from the slave market where someone is put up for sale and someone buys them and frees them then. You were bought with a price and so we are redeemed. We are treasured. There's a value to our life. We are freed by him, but never freed from Christ. We're freed by him, but not freed from him. Christ does not buy us away from the domain of darkness to transfer us to the dominion of, there you go, fly away free. No, to the kingdom his beloved son. And that is huge to see that, that we are redeemed by God in Christ to be a part of that kingdom. And it's so counter to our, our secular idea of autonomous freedom that it just grates away at our, at our thinking. Some of you movie buffs, you'll remember the Avengers movie where the, 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 the arch nemesis Loki has this line where he says, you were meant to be ruled if you remember this thing, this idea of all the human race is meant to be ruled by something. And when we hear that, as Hollywood puts it forward, we recoil. We go, no, I want my freedom, my autonomy. But the reality is that human beings will always become slaves to something. 
you will become slaves to your passions. We fight for freedom, but we don't stop to ponder. What were we enslaved by in the first place? And the answer is sin. We're slaves to our sin. We're not free. Sin is our master. But Christ, we can look back at it and say, I was enslaved there, but now I'm freed. Freed to follow him. Freed to be moved by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And again, we can think of this negatively and positively. If we think about it negatively, we go, well, I'm a slave to God who bought me. Praise the Lord. This is true. And it is an important point for us to hold on to. But if we never mature to the point where we take great delight in that and think of this positively... I'm freed from sin that enslaved me. If we never make that move, then we are are really missing out on the joy that is one of the hallmarks of the Christian life. Because there's no joy in just thinking, well, I'm just, now I'm oppressed here. I'm just leading the Christian. A lot of our songs and our attitudes that were inherited from people that lead us there. No, no, no. You're free. There's joy here. And you have great value. I love this thought. You were bought with a price. When you wake up in the morning, you go, does my life mean anything? Like, am I going anywhere here? Does does this matter? Like, you know, I've done all this stuff. I've worked this long career. Does it matter? You know, and we think about all these things. We get all up inside of our head. You were bought with a price. You matter. God values you and treasures you in Christ so much. He has with great purpose unfolded the day in front of you. So we're told to run the race set before you. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's good news. We need to get out of this negative way of conceiving of you were bought with a price and treasure it. It's great joy. That's what our songs are, are intended to remind us of. There's joy here. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God. If we don't exist to just please ourselves, we must exist for some greater purpose. There's got to be some, something better than just ourselves. We exist to glorify God. And again, you can take this negatively. Well, we're depriving ourselves of our own pleasures and our own self-satisfying things in order to glorify God. Or you can think of this positively. Uh, think of that what's done in the spirit for God's glory has real meaning. So much of the stuff that we do, day in and day out, does it really matter? Does it have real meaning? But if you're doing this for the glory of God, you can have real meaning and real value in everything. His approval, it's utterly free from the gnawing anxiety that grates at our deepest subconscious sometimes. Does my life matter? Yes, it does. Your life is about the glory of God. And that matters very, very much. It's something that will never fade away. Our satisfaction, our pleasures, our pursuits, our hobbies, our endeavors, our career, all of that will fade away. But the glory of God is like the rising morning star. You hit your life to that, and you will never set. It is an eternal weight of glory. And that's so good. Think about these things in the positive light. Glorify God. Now, Uh, An illustration for you, I I am a a lover of hymnology, and I realize that makes me immediately out of touch with most everybody (laughs) in the world today. Um, There was a a Canadian lady named Margaret Clarkson 
um, back in the 20th century. She, uh, she ended up going up in and being a teacher in the very, very poor logging uh, community and even the mining community in northern Ontario. And it was rough work. The people were just depressed and awful. They didn't get much sunshine. <laughs> and it, it was a rough time. And she expressed herself as a Christian by writing verses, by writing poems. And one of her poems became one of the most commonly sung missionary hymns of the 20th century. And she wrote in 1954, she wrote this as if she's the voice of God, which, listen, that sounds super creepy, but <laughs> it, it, it's, it works. And if you've heard this hymn, you'll go, oh, I never realized that was God talking. So, so listen to this now. These are her words from 1954. Margaret Clarkson, a poor, lonely, depressed Christian working in the cold, dark north of Ontario, she wrote in the words of God, so send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. If you've been in church a while, you might have heard this hymn sung at someone's missionary commissioning service. Listen to verse 2. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken, or wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burdens of a world aweary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. You encouraged? You gotta understand how many missionaries were sent out into the field, sung this song with sun at their commissioning service. I promise you, right? Verse 3. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. Encouraged yet? One more verse. Verse 4. Here we go. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend, though it be blood, to spend and spare not. So send I you to taste of Calvary. <sighs> now, here's an here's interesting thing about Margaret Clarkson. Nine years later, she looked back on that time in her life and she looked at those words and she says, that is theologically, doctrinally wrong. Did you know that? She did. She basically repented of writing those words. But by that time, it had sunk into so many hymnals, it was an irretrievable mess. And in 1963, she wrote these words later. And I'm trying, to, I'm sharing this with you, not just because I'm a nerd and I love old hymns, but because I want you to hear the negative when in a point of darkness and despair, we hear one thing that though there may be truth there, certainly doesn't lead us to God, but only inward into our depression. Listen now to what she says. And these words, if these don't make your heart sing, my goodness, I love how she rewrote this hymn. Listen to these words. She wrote this. So send I you by grace, made strong to triumph, or hosts of hell, or darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear, and in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win. So send I you to take to souls in bondage, 
the word of truth that sets the captive free, to break the bonds of sin, to loose death's fetters, so send I you to bring the lost to me. So send I you my strength to know in weakness, my joy in grief, my perfect peace in pain, to prove my power, my grace, my promised presence. So send I you eternal fruit to gain. So send I you to bear my cross with patience and then one day with joy to lay it down. Isn't that great? Sorry, I just hit my mic. <laughs> to hear my voice, well done, my faithful servant. Come share my throne, my kingdom, and my crown. That's, that's a worldview change, Christian, from looking at everything in the negative to seeing the joy of desiring, delighting, to live for the glory of God. If you think that the Christian life is miserable, you're still in love with the lie of Genesis 3. You're not in the word of truth. You're not in love with it. Let me say that again. If you think the Christian life is miserable, you're in love with the world still. And you don't understand the joy of communion with God, of walking in the truth. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God. And we could all go home and be like, oh, I was kind of edified today. That's great. That's super great. All right. Good news. Man, I can be cheerful. But what's the next phrase? In your body. And boy, that's a bummer, because you know, this message could be just super cheerful and easy. It could be really easy. But he says, in your body. Because he is going to make us take our theology and incarnate and live out this truth in your body. This is where most of us find something perplexing. Can't we just say, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and be done with it? As Christians, we are terribly prone to Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, briefly outlined, is a separation of what happens spiritually from what happens physically. And so we sing our songs about eternal life and eternal salvation. And then what do we do? How do we live that out day unto day? I glorify God in my heart, we say. Yeah, well, how about your wallet? I praise the Lord for the things he's done. Okay, how about your waistline? I'm deeply concerned about where the church is going nowadays. Great, what did you do Friday night? Oh, we like to reply, I go to church. I'm doing a devotional. I'm part of a discipleship group. Yeah, but your, is your mind actually full of anger and lust? On one hand, we like to think that what we do physically doesn't really pollute my heart. Or conversely, we like to think that our dirty minds and what they dwell on, it really won't have to impact my walk with God. And folks, th those are just not true things. And that Gnosticism sinks so deep under the, the groundwork of our Christian life. We need to hear from God about this. We are Gnostic fools when we think this way. Our heart, soul, strength, and mind are all one before God, and either we glorify Him with all of it, or we are the only ones being fooled. 
You are not your own. Praise God, I'm free. You're bought with a price. Praise God, I'm treasured by him. So glorified God. This is great. I have purpose in my life. But in your body? Now, come with me to the exposition of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. And this is where I'm going to explain to you why this message must be preached backwards if you want people to stay with you. It is because this is one of the ugliest, most piercing passages of Scripture. And if I start with it, there's no way that you're going to stay with a preacher long enough to hang on to the worldview implications. So with apologies for having started that way, come with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. I'll point out to you how chapter 6, which of course is a, a division in the Bible that, that is added later, but how this unit is organized. There are six rhetorical questions in 6 verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then you have verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And we see in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Six rhetorical questions outline this chapter, and we're going to deal with the last three of them. They are rhetorical because the implication is these are axiomatic truths. And if you don't understand them, what are you thinking? These are so important. So in context, this passage leads us down a word of exhortation much more pointed than any of the foregoing worldview reflections. Come with me to verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. I'll pause here, and let's look at this several verses. This seems to be a series of qualifications that Paul writes upon common sayings, whether they were sayings that were remembered by the church as dealing with Christian liberty, or whether they were just common cultural sayings. We're not sure. But they seem to be the sorts of things that Paul says, you all know that it's commonly said, all things are lawful for me. But then he qualifies this, and he's trying to guide us towards Christian liberty. And, and I'd like to just unfold for you something I'm sure you've heard before, but the, the notion of Christian liberty needs to be parsed, as it were, from the idea of legalism and license or licentiousness. Christian liberty must not be polluted by either of these. Legalism is allegiance to works. Licentiousness is an allegiance to appetites. But Christian liberty is allegiance to God. And you'll note there that allegiance to God is not the same thing as autonomous freedom. It's not. None of us are autonomous. We are in union with Christ. We have an allegiance to God. So 
either you have an allegiance to works, if I do a thing that I can get, the thing about this is every religion in the world is this, to get to God, there's things that I do to get to God, right? That, that's, that's every world religion ultimately turns around that sort of a thing, a series of steps that I perform. This is why so often Christians say, I'm not interested in religion. I have as many problems with that as the next guy. I want this communion, this relationship with God. But we get into this idea when we're freed up from legalism, where we err in this side of license. Where we say, you know, I'm free to do everything. All things are lawful for me. And Paul's like, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, maybe all things are lawful, but they're, not all things are helpful. Don't you want to be helpful? Doesn't the Holy Spirit who dwells within you want to be helpful? All things are lawful for me. Yeah, yeah, but, but I'm not supposed to be dominated by anything, am I? I mean, the Holy Spirit's not supposed to like, be dominated, right? And so these, the qualifications that are brought down there, that's what Paul is getting to. To be overruled by our appetites, our imaginations, our habits, our swollen desires. It's a disgrace to God. It's a disgrace to ourselves. To be engaged with activities that are not faith working through love, it's unhelpful in life. How can this please God? Come with me to the next verse. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And here you go. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now pause here. If you underline in your Bible, do that. If you highlight on your phone, whatever it is, your bodies are members with Christ. This is an axiomatic sta statement. We belong to Christ. We are his hands, his feet. We are part of Christ's body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it's written, the two become one flesh. He picks up from Genesis 2, what God says about a man and his wife. And he says, this is what you're doing with your body. Your body makes promises that whether you mentally want to assent to it or not, your body is making a promise there, a covenant. And you cannot be covenanted to God and then break that covenant by being covenanted to someone else. That, that's wrong. You belong to him. He who joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? There's your next one. Do you not know your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So God is not just for the mind or just for the heart, but the Lord is meant for the body. I think that there's a lot of Gnosticism floating around in our minds that we just don't want to deal with. We don't want to think about God caring about my body. What doesn't God care about what I, books I read? Well, I'm part of a fascinating reading group. I'm always like, yeah, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> what are you doing with your body? I love great books. I love the good books that you have up there. Don't take me wrong. 
But if, if, as I shepherd the church, one of the things I found over and over and over again is that some of the most profound thinkers have some of the most anemic wills. I think and think, and it's wonderful, and I love it. I love conversation. It's great. But what are you doing? We obey far less than we know. And God's word is designed for us to obey. Not because we're legalists, and by that obedience, I work my way to God. That's where we get broken down. But because we belong to him, and we have the power steering, that's a poor illustration, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit working within us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We have that. We can go with God in the face of our culture and all of its shameful appetites. And I know this is an awkward point to make in mixed company, this whole deal about sexual immorality, but we're impotent spiritually friends if we cave into sexual perversion. I did not come here today with a message for any one of you, so please, if this is the word of God and the spirit of God convicting your heart, it is not my plan. It is God's word. But listen, I've... I've seen people who've gone for 30 years attending church, being involved in ministries, who have never bothered to remove that, that knife from their gut. They're walking around with this wound constantly. It's a spiritual wound, and sexual perversion is one of the, the darkest wounds. The scripture says here that every other sin is without, but the, the sexual immorality is something that comes from within. If you think about drugs, people get involved in drugs, uh, you, you know, it's, it's something that, that's outside of you. Your desire is there, but you have to go and find it. Sexual sin is something that arises from within. It's a habit that is formed in frames of mind that, that, that come from inside of you. And its grip then is it, you don't have a barrier. It's very, very, very heavy. And some of you know what that's like. And I just have to ask you this. Why should Satan bother the church today with trials when he can just destroy a church with a few pleasures? Think about that. Why does Satan need to wreck your life if he can just give you a little bit of pleasure, much easier? Ah, they're spoiled. Move along. I'm reading the screw tape letters with a friend of mine. Uh, week by week, he takes a break. He works in a, in a garage, and, and he comes over, and, and, and we meet in my study. We're reading this, you know, they're short little chapters. And it is fascinating to just think about how much easier it is to spoil a Christian from within than to try to wreck the Christian life by trials from without. Much easier. You know, that famous statement, maybe it goes back to Cicero, that no great nation can be destroyed from without unless it is first has fallen apart from within. Uh, that's true in our soul as well. And friends, if your soul is corrupted by this sin, you need to, by the Spirit, put to death this thing. This needs to be an end. Our bodies are members of Christ. We will raise up in our bodies as Christ is. We can't be engaged with sexual sin. We can't say, well, I just can't wait till I'm heaven and I'm free from this sin. Wait, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever I prepare a message, one of the things that I do is I listen to other well-known Bible teachers and preachers go through just to kind of go, what did they do with that passage? Because, you know, I don't know. 
<laughs> I just want to know if I'm like way off in left field, right? So I won't na I won't drop names here because I know that, that immediately you know sends things. But I, I listened to some guys, and I was shocked by this one well-known Bible expositor. You know, he spent 90% of his time in this passage in the Old Testament, dealing with God's passion for the purity of the temple. Why? Because he understood if we would get our minds fixed on God's passion for the temple and understand that, then wow, that would have such a huge impact on how we see our bodies. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why in our Old Testament scripture reading for today, we considered what God said through the prophet Haggai. What are you doing going off and building your own houses? My temple's in ruins. What are you thinking? You need to take care of this. This matters more. And why we look at in the book of Hebrews, all of the things that happened under the old covenant were shadows. They were pictures. They were illustrations of spiritual realities. And so Christ is the fulfillment of all of these spiritual realities. That's why we read in Hebrews today. Think about, as we will even observe communion shortly, about this this, this beauty of the spiritual realities to which all of those things point. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We have a holy union between our all, heart, soul, strength, and mind. We're members of his body, not autonomous to do as we please. We must act as his very hands and feet. Think again about this appeal Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And this appeal is so earnest. And look, whatever you think you're fine to do in the privacy of your own home, whatever thoughts you and I do not take captive to obey Christ, we've got to repent. And I, I challenge my church family regularly. The Christian life, is an ongoing sequence of repenting. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us bit by bit until one day we'll see him and we'll be like him. But there is a forward motion that happens here that we have got to be engaged with the Holy Spirit in, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I think sometimes I talk about this in a Sunday school class I teach sometimes, that my, my peers who are also midlife raising kids are like, like, really? Like, Christian, like we're supposed to wake up every day and confess our sins and repent? It's like, yeah, it's not like you're getting saved again. It's like you're, you're telling God the truth and you're allowing his spirit and his word to convict you and for you to remember that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and that he's just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That it is the Holy Spirit's word, uh, will to, to purify that temple he dwells in. Uh, I think sometimes people involve, get involved in so much sin when it comes especially to sexual stuff that they don't even know where to go. And I would just encourage you practically, just, just as one guy speaking to you, I found very helpful the harvestusa.org. I'm not advertising for them. They are kind of connected to the CCEF uh, counseling ministries. Uh, they have a whole bunch of videos of people who've dealt with every kind of sin, sexual sin, temptation, and their testimonial videos of people who've, who've lived sometimes under this bondage for so long, and they've found this freedom. You need to hear those stories. If you're sitting here going, ah, oh, 
heard this a million times, man. I was youth group through all this. We all told each other our sins. It was youth group, man. It doesn't work. You need to hear the stories, and you need to follow with the Holy Spirit. He wants to free you. There's another account in one of C.S. Lewis's books of, of, a, of a, a dialogue between a, a person from heaven who's ridden out on a stallion, talking with with a, a man who has come from the outskirts of hell, who has a lizard whispering in his ear. And it's from the, the great divorce, and in there the, the lizard keeps whispering lust-filled thoughts and poisoning the ear of this man. And the, 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 the being from heaven finally says to him, can I just kill that? Can I, can I just kill it? He's like, well, well, no, he keeps cherishing this little lizard on his shoulder. It's this poignant view of sexual sin and how it corrupts. And the beautiful thing is in the end, he allows him to kill it, and it transforms into this beautiful stallion, and lust becomes love. This great sacrificial caring, humble love. It's this massive stallion, and he gets up on it, and he rides on to, to, into the heavenly realms. This is a beautiful picture. This is God's will for your life and my life. I think so often we think of this only in a negative sense, like, well, I'm going to struggle forever. Fight this by the Spirit. For you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now you understand why this message is... It's very hard to start off with this exposition because it's just, ugh, it's heavy. I told Pastor Joe, I said, I think I'm going to preach here. What do you think? And he goes, that's fine. I was like, they'll be so happy to have you back, Joe. <laughs> this passage is heavy. It's hard, but it is God's word, and perhaps for you today, I don't know. The Spirit has used this to cut you open. We're going to move shortly to our time of communion how many times have you heard the echo of Christ's words? This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. How, how can we think we are in a right relationship with God if he who broke his body for us is viewed with such disdain that we are not willing to consider our bodies to be a temple of the Holy Spirit and live for him. I was in a church in North Carolina on vacation, and it was a small church like this, and I, I loved visiting. It's always great to visit when you're not a pastor. It's, it's exciting. You're very edified usually. And The pastor had an interesting thing. He, he had worked with the congregation on a refrain. He would say at the end of his message, to live is Christ. The church would say, to die is gain. Can we do that together here? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we move now to remember Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And may this word not fall upon infertile soil in our hearts today, Father, but pierce us through, cut us open. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And may we reserve nothing in this. This I ask in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.